As the previous Mishnah introduced, the remaining Mishnahs of this parak discuss a type of creature called a koi. And the thing which is unique about a koi is that we're not sure whether it is considered a behemoth, a domesticated animal such as sheep, cows, and goats, or whether it is considered a chaya, a more wild animal. And because of that, we're going to see in the remaining Mishnahs that a koi basically has the stringencies of both a chaya and a behemoth. And so the Mishnah begins with Ketzad Shavala Chaya, how is it similar and how is it the same? What halachas does it share with a Chaya, with a wild animal? So the first thing concerns the mitzvah of Kisui Hadam, which is the requirement to cover the blood of an animal which one slaughters with earth or sand or some ash. And the Torah says when you slaughter a Chaya or a bird, then you need to cover it with earth. So that mitzvah of Kisui Hadam does not apply to a behemoth. But since the koi could be a chaya, one is obligated out of doubt that tomoi ton kisui kadam chaya, its blood requires covering once it is slaughtered, just like the blood of a chaya. Now on Yom Tov, one is allowed to do any preparation for food, and therefore you would be allowed to slaughter an animal for the sake of eating it on Yom Tov. However, you're not allowed to dig up earth on Yom Tov. That's not a direct preparation for food. And therefore, in general, unless you dug up earth before Yom Tov, you shouldn't really be able to slaughter an animal on Yom Tov, since you can't fulfill the mitzvah of Kisri Hadam. However, the Mishnah at the beginning of Beitzah teaches that the ashes which accumulate at the bottom of an oven, one can do Kisri Hadam with those ashes. And even though in general ashes are muktzah on Yom Tov, which means that one is not allowed to move them, because when Yom Tov came in, he didn't have in mind to use them for anything. Ashes are generally useless. However, the Mishnah at the beginning of Beitzah teaches us that since it's common for people to slaughter animals on Yom Tov, we consider it as if he did really have subconsciously the intention when Yom Tov came in to use the ashes of his oven for the sake of the mitzvah of Kisri Hadam. However, when it comes to a koi, we don't assume that you had that intention, because a koi is only obligated in Kisri Hadam out of doubt, and the intention which somebody has when Yom Tov comes in is that he'll use his ashes for the sake of the actual mitzvah of Kisri Hadam. Not when it's a doubt and you're possibly obligated in Kisri Hadam, rather he only has intention to use the ashes to cover the blood only when it's an obligation. And therefore, says the Mishnah, one is not allowed to slaughter a koi on Yom Tov, since he won't be able to use the ashes for Kisri Hadam. And in fact, the Imshachata, even if he does end up slaughtering it on Yom Tov, since it's not definitely obligated in Kisri Hadam, in Mechas one does not cover its blood, even with the ashes, since it is not considered prepared, and therefore the ashes are considered muktza. Alright, next, the halacha is that a animal which dies, if it dies without slaughtering, then it's forbidden to eat it. And in fact, when it comes to a behemoth, the flesh of that animal is tome, so if you touch it, you'd become impure. However, the fats of a behemoth are not tome. On the other hand, when it comes to a chaya, the fats of a chaya which was not slaughtered is considered tome. So the Mishnah says that we apply that stringency to a koi, since it's possibly a chaya, and therefore the its fat would make one tome if he touches it, as the tum of a nevela. A nevela is an animal which dies without being slaughtered. Kachaya, just like a chaya. And again, this is out of doubt in case the koi is indeed a chaya. So the mission notes for Tum Osobisophic, it's only a doubtful Tumah. And there are consequences of that. For example, one is not allowed to enter the base Hamikdosh while he is Tomei. And if he does so, then he is Chayv Kores. Or he would be Chayv Korban as well. But that only applies to somebody who is definitely Tomei. So if somebody touches the fats of a Koi and then enters the base Hamikdosh, he would not be Chayv Kores and he would not be obligated to bring a Korban either. Okay, the last one on the list is 
to do in Peter Hamur, and that refers to the law about a firstborn donkey, that a firstborn donkey needs to be redeemed onto a seh. The Torah says, The firstborn donkey needs to be redeemed with a seh, and a seh refers to a sheep or a, or a goat. And those are both examples of a behemoth, which means that there is no chaya at all which can be used to redeem a firstborn donkey, whereas there are some types of behemoth which can be used. So the Mishnah says that in this sense, a koi is considered to be like a chaya, in that one cannot redeem a firstborn donkey with a koi, since it is not considered a seh. Mishnah Yud, in what ways are the halachas of a koi the same as the halachas for a regular behemoth? So firstly, the fat of a koi is forbidden to be eaten just like the fat of a regular behemoth. Now when we say fat, it doesn't refer to all of the fat of the animal, rather certain fats within the animal, those are considered to be chilev, and the halach is, the Torah says, that the chilev of a behemoth may not be eaten. Whereas the chilev of a chaya, that can be eaten. So the Mishnah says, in case a koi is actually considered a behemoth, one may not eat its chilev. So it comes out that the chilev of a behemoth cannot be eaten, but it does not become tome in the case where the animal it dies a natural death without being slaughtered. On the other hand, when it comes to a chaya, that can become tome if it dies a natural death, but at the same time it can be eaten if it was slaughtered correctly. Continues the mission of of Kores, one would not be liable to the punishment of Kores if he eats the chilev of a koi, although one is chayv Kores if he eats the chilev of a regular behemoth, one is only chayv Kores for a definite averus. But since a koi could be a chayar, in which case you're allowed to eat its chilev, so if one does so, he would not be liable to Kores. Okay, the next one on the list concerns the halachas of Maisasheni. Maisasheni is a tenth of one's produce which he separates to bring up to Yerushalayim, but what one would often do is redeem that Maisasheni produce onto money, so the money now has the sanctity of Maisasheni, bring that money up to Yerushalayim, and then spend the money on food in Yerushalayim, and that food would then have the sanctity of Maisasheni. Now, the ideal way to spend the Maisasheni money is on buying Korbanos Shalomim. Now, Korban Shalomim can only come from a behemoth, a domesticated animal, and in order that people were to buy Korbanos Shalomim with the Maisasheni money, Midjabonon, if you buy an animal which could technically be bought as a Korban Shalomim, so for example, a sheep, then you have to bring it as a Korban Shalomim and you can't just eat it yourself as regular meat. Rather, you should bring it as a Korban and then eat it as a Korban. Now, since a chaya can't even be bought as a carbon shalomim, so that means that if you buy a chaya, obviously you can eat it yourself without bringing it as a carbon, since it can't be bought as a carbon. Be it as it may, the mission says that since a koi is possibly a behemoth, this stringency applies to it, and therefore, one may not buy a koi with my sashimi money in order to eat it in Yerushalayim without bringing it as a carbon. And in fact, you can't buy it at all, since if it is a behemoth, then it has to be bought as a carbon. But you can't bring a koi as a carbon in case it's a chaya. So it comes out that you cannot spend my sashini money on a koi at all. Alright, the next one on the list concerns the gifts of an animal which one needs to give to a kohen. The halach is that when one slaughters an animal to eat for himself, even not as a carbon, he's obligated to give certain parts of it to a kohen. And that only applies to a behemoth, so the Mishnah says that that applies to a koi as well. Out of doubts of a chay of bizroya, one is obligated to give the front right leg 
of the animal to the Kohen, or at least part of that leg, the cheekbone, the keva, the stomach, these three things need to be given to a Kohen when one slaughters a Kohen. And again, the reason is that since it might be a behemoth, one is obligated to give these things to a Kohen. However, Abeliezer brings up a very important point, and Abeliezer Poiter, Abeliezer exempts one from separating these parts and giving it to a Kohen because of a fundamental and famous rule. One wants to take something from somebody else, needs to bring a proof that he's entitled to it. And since a Kohen cannot prove that the Kohen is a behemoth, so he can't receive those parts of the animal which are only separated from a behemoth. So any gift to somebody else does not need to be separated if it's only out of doubt. Now if that's the case, what would the Tanakama say? Why does the Tanakama obligate one to separate these and give it to a Kohen? The answer is the Tanakama actually learns this from a Posuk, where the Posuk actually adds in a couple of unnecessary words. So that comes to include even a case of a doubtful behemoth within the obligation of giving these parts to a Kohen. So you're not giving it out of doubt. You're definitely obligated to, because the Torah included in its obligation even a case where it's a doubt. Okay, so that's the end of the list of ways how it is similar to a behemoth and the stringencies which apply. And we're going to see in the next Mishnah other stringencies which apply because it is not like either behemoth or chaya. Mishnah Aleph. How is a koi, which we are not sure whether it's a chaya or a behemoth, so in what ways are its halachas not like a chaya or a behemoth? And the reasons for this list is in case the koi is really neither of them. Because it could be that a koi doesn't really fit into either of the categories, and it's its own category, its own breed in itself. And so the Mishnah says that first the Osmushum Kilayim in Machayavim Abahema, it is forbidden to be Kilayim with a Chaya or a Behema. The Torah says that it is forbidden to work a Behema and a Chaya together. And as well as that, it's also forbidden to mate a Behema and a Chaya together. That comes under the category, the prohibition of Kilayim. So since a Koi could be a Chaya or a Behema, so that means that you can't have the Kilayim with a Behema or a Chaya, because it could be either one. Continues the Mishnah, one who writes in a document that he is giving over as a present his chaya and his behema to his son. So he writes that all of his chayas and all of his behemas he is giving over as a present to his son. Says the Mishnah, he has not written for him the koi, meaning the son does not receive the koi if, let's say, the father dies since then. So we can't just ask him what he meant, so we're not sure whether he included the koi in the present or not. Since it could be that a koi is neither a chaya nor a behemah, it is not included in the present, and although there's a possibility that it is included, because it could be it's a chaya, it could be it's a behemah, nevertheless, as we saw in the previous Mishnah, the rule of hamitzimei chaveru olav haraya. The one can only receive something if he can prove that he is entitled to it. But since it could be that a koi is neither a chaya nor a behemah, in which case the son should not get it, so indeed the son doesn't get it, since you can only receive something if it's certain that you should receive it. And the next one on the list is not really part of the list of ways that it is not similar to a chaya nor a behemah, as we will explain. In Omar, if one says, Harini nozer, behold, I am a nozer. A nozer is somebody who accepts upon himself certain prohibitions. For example, he can't drink wine or anything which comes out of grapes. He can't become Tommy from a dead body and he can't cut his hair. So if somebody says, I am accepting upon myself to become a nozer, on condition shazechaya, that this, this koi, which let's say he sees a koi in front of him, so he says, I'm going to be a nozer on condition that this is considered to be a chaya, a behemoth, or on condition that this is considered to be a behemoth. 
Says the Mishnah, Harei hu nozer, he is considered a nozer out of doubt. And the truth is, the Mishnah in Maseches Nozer says that the same applies to somebody who says that I'll be a nozer on condition that a koi is a chayo and a behemah, or on condition that a koi is neither a chayo nor a behemah. So whatever he says, really, Harei hu nozer, he is considered to be a nozer because we're strict on him. Again, since it could be any of those, there's a possibility that it's only a behemah, there's a possibility that it's only a chaya, or it's both, or it's none. So if he says any of those, then he will be a nozer out of doubt. As the rule is, Sophic the Raisa a doubt when it comes to a Torah law, such as a nozer, is ruled stringently. Alright, ends off the Mishnah and the Perek, or Sh'or called Rachov, and the rest of the ways of a koi, the rest of the halachas, Shovin Lacher Vla Behemah, it is considered to be the same as both a Chaya and the Behemah, meaning all of the halachas which apply to both a Behemah and a Chaya apply to a koi as well. For example, the Torn Shechita Kosev It requires slaughtering, just like a Behemah and a Chaya. If you want to eat a koi, you need to slaughter it in the correct manner. Secondly, it becomes tome. The animal itself becomes tome when it's an avela. An avela is an animal which dies without being slaughtered. And thirdly, a limb which is separated from it while it is alive, that is considered tome. So if somebody touches that, he will become tome. Just like the limb which comes from a live chaya or a live behemoth. And the truth is there are many other halachas which apply to all animals. The Mishnah just gives us a couple of examples in order to bring out the point. Perigil Mishnah Aleph. The third perk of Bikurim is really the perk which goes through the process of how one would separate Bikurim and what exactly they would do with that Bikurim. So the perk begins by asking, How would one separate Bikurim? And designate those fruit as Bikurim. Says the Mishnah, one would go down into his field, and if he sees a fig which has ripened, and the truth is, even if it has just begun to ripen, as soon as the fruit has begun to grow, it can already be designated as Bikurim. So even though for most halachas, a fruit is only considered to be a fruit once it's fully grown, it's learned from a posuk that the fruit can be designated as bikurim even bef- before they reach that stage of being considered a fruit. And this is because in the mikro bikurim, in the declaration which one makes when he brings bikurim, the posuk says that he should say, Hinehevesi esreishis prihadoma, I have brought the first of my fruit to ripen which implies that it only has to be considered a fruit when he brings it. But when he actually designates it, it doesn't yet have to be a fruit. So already from that stage, or when it comes to Eshkol, a cluster of grapes, Shebiker, as soon as it begins to ripen, meaning as soon as the grape begins to grow, or Rimoin, as soon as a pomegranate, Shebiker, it begins to ripen, Kosher Begemi, he should tie it with a thread. Or Gemi is actually a reed, a soft reed, which you can tie around a branch. So you should tie it by that fruit, V'Omer and declare Hara'ilu Bikurim, behold, these are Bikurim. And according to the Tanakama, already from that point onwards, they have the sanctity of Bikurim, and the designation is valid. And the reason why you tie a string or a reed over there is so that you can remember and you could recognize which one you declared to be Bikurim. There are lots of fruit on the tree, so if you don't mark which one you declared Bikurim, you could easily get confused and not remember which one is the Bikurim fruit. Okay, on the other hand, Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Shimon says, Afapichain, Despite this, meaning even if you did already separate the Bikurim when they were young, and you went through this whole process, nevertheless, you need to go back and declare those fruit to be Bikurim, 
after you detach the fruit from the ground, because Rabbi Shimon learns from another pasuk which says that you should take the Bikurim from the first fruit which ripen. We see from that Pasuk that even at the time that you take the Bikurim, you designate the fruit as Bikurim, already at that time it has to be considered a fruit. And therefore you can only really declare fruit Bikurim, and the designation will only be valid if you do it after it has grown fully. And therefore only once you've detached it from the ground, once it's fully grown, only then can you declare it Bikurim. So even if you did declare it earlier on, you would need to declare it Bikurim once again, once it is fully ripe.